thank you, Anne-Marie, for reading us God's Word today, giving honor to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and thanks to Him for this opportunity to preach God's Word, and also giving thanks to Pastor Gerald for the opportunity to stand in his seed. Steve, good morning to all of you. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. We bless you, Father, for your kindness in calling us to the house of God to worship you this morning, you who are the blessed God overall. Thank you for bringing us to the place where we can see your power and glory and hear of the wonder of your mighty works and be confronted with the will of God for our lives. Look down upon us in kindness and mercy. Blot out our sins, removing them far from us. Thank you for the powerful blood of Christ that takes away all of our sin. Thank you so much for your great love toward us. Would you now, God, give us ears to hear and power to preach? Would you meet with us through uh, the word of God this morning? Would you encourage us? and strengthen us, and bless us, and make us know what you would want us to do with our lives. Do it, God, because there are 6.4 billion people in the world who still do not know Christ and are in need of the gospel. God, make us instruments who are obedient to the Great Commission to do your will. And God, there may be some 7 million or more people, even in Chicagoland, who are without Christ. God, use us as your instruments of the love of Christ. Bless now, Father, and speak to us, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Maybe like no other court vacancy opportunity, the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy at the time of midterm elections raises concern or hope for political liberals and conservatives. It raises concern for those who think Kennedy's legacy on LBGT rights will be in jeopardy. Kennedy wrote the majority opinion in four cases that favored LBGT rights, including Lawrence versus Texas, which opened widely the way for legalized same-sex marriage, United States versus Windsor, which found the Defense of Marriage Act, also known as DOMA, to be unconstitutional, and Obergefell versus Hodges, which recognized the national right to same-sex marriages based on the 14th Amendment. To the despair of LBGT rights advocates, this vacancy means that the swing vote needed in such cases might no longer be present. In contrast, Kennedy's departure raises hopes for those who are waiting to see the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Many are expecting the president to nominate a decidedly pro-life candidate and that such a candidate, if appointed, will work with the court's other conservatives to see that the ruling that unjustly sanctions the right to choose to dehumanize an unborn human being is undone. 
The pundit banter, emotions, jockeying, and lobbying by all American political ideologies evidences our increasing status as a litigation society. That is, whatever we want in life, and to address every perceived wrong, no matter how small or great, we appeal to the law and to our rights. We will go to court over immigration policy bans and gender discrimination. If you won't make a cake for our wedding, we will get backing for a suit to shut down your business and every business like yours rather than just finding someone else to make the cake. And whatever you do, you better have insurance for that bouncy house at your block party, for if a gust of wind blows it off its moorings, a resulting legal case might blow away your life savings with it. Our demand for rights for what is or perceived to be right often leads to good outcomes. For the legal protection of our rights secures justice from institutions against racial discriminatory practices, equity in market opportunities for both large corporations and small businesses, fair wage earning between labor and management, and proper accountability for those officers of the law who wrongfully make abuses or corrupt uses of their power. But greater than the outcomes, almost every pursuit of litigation reveals that what we are really seeking from the courts is that one right that everyone demands, the right to be happy. Even if the court will not give us the right to life and the right to liberty, we will be happy and no one will take that from us. Our pursuit of happiness through the courts is evident when we look at our view of the tenure of marriage, the very issue that the Pharisees bring to Jesus for legal adjudication. Jesus is going to address the legality of our happy desires, that is, do you and I have the right to demand to be happy? In addressing this, Jesus will raise the standards and stakes on the Christian view of marriage, especially as it relates to human law. The wisdom he provides on marriage and family also will help us understand Jesus' explanation of the relationship of getting into heaven and keeping the law. In doing so, we will gain a sobering picture of how we should examine our own righteous living. That is, whether or not we have the right to demand what is right. So let's take some time to get our family and life rights right. When the Pharisees come to Jesus, they do so as a test. This means that the intent of the question has ill motivation. There in verse 3, they ask, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, they are asking, If someone wants to get out of marriage, assuming he, she, or both parties are not happy in the marriage, is marriage so binding that one cannot get out? Or that someone better have a strong case for getting out? Or can one get out of marriage just because one wants out? This inquiry about no-fault divorce 
could get Jesus' head served on a silver platter like John the Baptist, who angered Herodias for questioning Herod's adultery. Or he could pit Jesus against the leading rabbinical views of his day. Rather than look at what was acceptable according to legal practice, even according to the contemporary interpretation of the law of Moses, Jesus will make an appeal that goes back to God's ordinances in the creation of human beings in Genesis 1.27 and back to the establishment of the institution of marriage in Genesis 2.24. In doing so, he will do several things. Here it is in verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus indicates first that marriage is God's idea and not a human construct. He who created them from the beginning made them, Jesus says, and that same he, God, said the words quoted in almost every evangelical church wedding. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus places both the creating of people compatible for marrying and the words of marital ordinance in the working and mouth of God. If marriage is a God construct and not a social construct, we do not have freedom to do with it whatever society pleases. Jesus. Second, indicates that marriage is intended to be a heterosexual union. Third, that it is to be a monogamous union. And fourth, that it is a mysterious union. It is a mysterious union because two persons are made into one person, even though the two persons retain two physically different identities. Now, by mysterious, I'm referring to something in the invisible and spiritual realm in which a binding takes place by God in a way similar to how we are united with Christ and in Christ by the Spirit mysteriously tying us to him and tying us to fellow believers, even though we retain a separate identity as his bride and as individual Christians. The mysterious union happens in a publicly sanctioned legal ceremony in which one with maleness biologically and anatomically is joined to someone with femaleness biologically and anatomically. Because verse 4 says he made them male and female. And the words are particular not to say man and woman, but characteristics male and female. So that sets maleness with maleness and female joined to femaleness outside of the realm of what God calls marriage, even if society deems it as a so-called marriage. This mysterious union occurs when that male and female remain two and if a third enters the marriage, you have three, and that is adultery. 
It is not swinging, recreation, side gig, adding spice, or an affair. It is a third attempting to enter a union that only can be held rightfully by God joining two. John Calvin's comments on these verses are so good, and now seems just about the right time to call in Calvin for backup based on your silence out there. <laughs> it is always good to quote Calvin. You really should go read his commentary on this entire chapter on CCEL online, for it's very good. But anyway, Calvin writes, Now Christ assumes as an admitted principle that at the beginning God joined the male to the female, so that the two made an entire person. And therefore, he who divorces his wife tears from him, as it were, the half of himself. But nature does not allow any man to tear in pieces his own body. This expression condemns polygamy not less than it condemns unrestrained liberty in divorcing wives. For if the mutual union of two persons was consecrated by the Lord, the mixture of three or four persons is unauthorized. Calvin continues. Christ applies these words in a different manner to his purpose, namely to show that whoever divorces his wife tears himself in pieces, because such is the force of holy marriage, that the husband and wife become one person. Let the husband and wife, therefore, live together in such a manner that each shall cherish the other in the same manner as if they were the half of themselves. Or, as Jesus instructs, forget about taking your marriage into your own hands to go to court to get out of it when you are not happy because God is the one who joins male and female together into one and no person is to separate what God does at the altar. Jesus' reply to the Pharisees' question about divorcing from one's marriage seemingly caused them as much indigestion and indignation as my explanation just caused some of you. So they then want to know why the Mosaic Law commands a certificate of divorce and allows for a man to divorce his wife. For in verse 7 it says, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? It would seem that the word of God then is sanctioning the dissolvability of marriage. But Jesus quickly straightens out their misreading of Deuteronomy 24.1. For there Moses is actually responding to a question of remarriage and not commanding divorce. But the response assumes divorce exists in society and reveals that divorce appeared in Israelite society because people were hard-hearted against God. Verse 8 says, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. By appealing to the creation account, again, Jesus shows that the desire for happiness that drives people out of marriage is an issue with your heart's response to God's establishment of a heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong, mysterious union more than it is to any problems with your spouse. Sidebar, please. 
With the issue of spousal abuse not being in discussion today, for that requires another full-length sermon on the topic, so I will not seem to be saying something contradictory to what I've already said, so we are not including the abuse discussion in what we're talking about here today. Yes, Jesus is talking about lifelong, for to divorce and marry another is to commit adultery because the mysterious union is in force, the exception clause notwithstanding. However, least you read too much into the exception clause, understand that if Jesus had wanted to give an exception for adultery, he could have used the word adultery twice in a sentence and said, except for adultery, commits adultery. But he does not say that. Often, we are willing to say or unwilling to say all that scripture says about marriage and have lowered our standards to the world's standards. Part of the problem is our reading of scripture. More of the problem is our sinful, hard-hearted desire for autonomy, rejection of authority, naive understanding of soul competency, and pride as it relates to getting professional help when we are struggling. Scripture locks us in marriage as God's intention for marriage. Scripture does allow it out. For Paul says, if you get a divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, but you should read all he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Scripture just does not give the priority to getting out of a marriage that society does. For Christ, in going to the cross in our place, dying for our sins, and rising again to defeat death powerfully, with all authority in heaven and earth given to him, offers spirit-filled resources to the believer for enduring the hardships of marriage. Resources like the power to forgive and seek forgiveness, patience, endurance, hope, self-control, faith, the ability to show grace and mercy and to put away bitterness. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The power to pray, encouragement and fellowship from fellow believers, a church family like this one, and the comforting promises of God from the scriptures. Resources the world does not have, so they must go to court rather than to the cross. But we can go to the cross. <laughs> I thank the Lord for those of you who have endured difficult marriages. And I have great sympathy for those of you whose first or second marriages dissolved for whatever reason. And may the Lord's grace be sufficient to heal you where you were wronged or maybe where you wronged another. Yet our experiences of grace, of grace, of grace are not the measure of what God says. Instead, let's say all of what should be said about marriage and divorce and teach it to our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews, even if we didn't understand when we were going to the altar. Let's all say, if you are going to the altar, you are going for life. Therefore, get the marital and premarital counseling you need to make this happen. Get the mentors and friendships in the body of Christ you need to support and build up your marriage. It's great 
that we cheer for the heterosexual and monogamous parts of the message of marriage, but we have to cheer for the lifelong part too. Don't let your spouse or someone else's selfishness or your own selfishness be the basis of your view of what is right in marriage. Tone down your legal rights. Go humble yourself before your spouse and others who can help you and work to get your marriage right. When I was a senior pastor, people, of course, would come to see me for counseling in their marriages. And when they would come sit down on opposite sides of the couch in front of me because they didn't want to sit right next to each other, they were fighting, I found myself often saying to them, if one of you would humble yourself, we quite possibly could save this marriage. If, if one of you would humble yourself, we could save this marriage. For I understood that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If both are going to dig their heels in and be in their pride, then, then God can't get in there and do what he needs, needs to do. I would be fighting God in what I'm trying to do. But if one of you will humble yourself, then we can invite the grace of God to come in and repair the things that are broken in here and make better than before anything that you have had in marriage. And the same holds true in my own marriage when a Occasionally, Pam and I have those oppositions and those conflicts that go on, whether they are pothole-sized conflicts or whether they are sinkhole-sized conflicts. The Holy Spirit says to me, if you would take responsibility for your part and humble yourself, I could work this thing out. And those are not easy things to hear from God because I want God to fix Pam. I don't want God to fix me. But he says to me, if you would humble yourself, if you would admit your part, I can step in there and do something. These are tough words from Jesus. The disciples perceive this. They get that Jesus has raised the bar so high on marriage that with all of the trials marriage can bring, if there is little provision for getting out, it might be better to avoid getting married altogether. It says in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus affirms this statement, recognizing that only certain persons can accept the statement that it might be better not to marry than to try to get out of the God-ordained, heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong, mysterious union of marriage. In doing so, he also will affirm the goodness of choosing to live as a single for his sake. Verse 12 says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. We all know what eunuchs are. Conjugal fulfillment... I'm trying to remember that this is family month in here and the kids are sitting among us, so I'm using my G-rated terms in here, but everybody, you get, get that in there. Uh, which to Jesus apparently is a provision of marriage only. It's something eunuchs cannot share. That is, those born without the ability to be enjoined to a spouse physically due to birth defect or surgical workings of different types can receive the statement, it is better 
not to marry. The only reason to bring up eunuchs is to clarify that the choice to forego marriage problems is a choice to be celibate. But those intending to be sexually fulfilled, you need to receive the statements that say, from the beginning, the stuff Jesus already talked about. Now, for the sake of propagation of the message of the gospel of Christ's kingdom, one can choose to be a eunuch, not surgically, but metaphorically. That is, you can say, I will exercise my right to live like a eunuch apart from marriage because I will give myself to the service of the king. This is not for everyone, but it is gloriously for some, even as much as marriage is for some. When we get these two things right, marriage and singleness, and look at the glory of both, we also can do a better job at understanding the purpose of children. For we read in verse 13, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Children, the natural outcome of marriage where there is not a physical or volitional choice for childlessness are to be brought to Jesus. They are not in the way of marital happiness, but are living pictures pointing us to the humility and helplessness needed to make it into the kingdom of heaven. For the Lord is not gathering unto himself arrogant competitors to his rule, but he is gathering to himself those who see themselves in need of heavenly parental instruction and power. Another man then approaches Jesus on a related subject. Verse 16 says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? The rich young ruler, as he is known commonly, wants to know what good deed is necessary to get to heaven. He feels he has a right to heaven, to ultimate happiness, because since childhood he is held to the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Even though he has done what is required by law to be obedient to God, seemingly he has a concern that he lacks something. Jesus in responding to the young man, speaks on five of the six last commandments that display themselves outwardly and also speaks the partial summation of the law when he adds, love your neighbor as yourself. But when he tells the young man to sell all, to give it to the poor, choose the treasures of heaven and follow Jesus, then that becomes too much for the young man to bear. And here's why. Being righteous before God is more than a matter of outward legal performance. It is about a heart fully sold out to God. And a test of how sold out you are to God is your willingness to bring all of your wealth under the Lordship of Christ and be in a position for the Lord to say, give away the riches and comforts of this life. Read American Dream 
And follow me the way the 12 apostles gave up every crucially comfort to do the work for my kingdom. If your heart is not open to that, do not think that you have a right to heaven on the basis of doing what seems to be right in actions. Honoring our parents and refraining from stealing and murdering are easy tasks compared to giving up earthly wealth. You never struggle when you get up in the morning and say, man, I really hope I don't murder somebody today. Man, I really hope I don't steal from somebody today. The heart that is right before God understands that the treasures of heaven are greater than the treasures of this life. What is the point? Well, the point is that before we become comfortable in thinking we are more mature or more righteous than others, we need to allow for a real heart examination. If you have any attachment to the monetary and material things of this life, do not go pointing out the wrongness of others and the imperfection of others. Not of your spouse, not of your children, not of your parents, not of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the point also is that if you came in here today thinking that everyone who does a small measure of earthly good has a right to get into heaven, that you have a right to get into God's heaven because you've been a pretty good person, you are fooling yourself. The rich man who was relying on his good works assumes his own righteousness in actions because he does not look at the attachment of his heart to riches rather than to God. Jesus thus renders both the young man's keeping of the commandments and his attachment to his riches as deeds that are not good. For the outward conformity to good works of the law means nothing if there is not a heart that is submissive to God. The very reason Jesus had to come die for us is that there is only one who does good according to God's standards, and that is God himself. The rest of us are miserably sinful, deserving every last ounce of the wrath of God, and only have hope of heaven by believing Jesus' death for our sins and resurrection from the dead are sufficient to give us eternal life in him. The gospel. Our society almost wholeheartedly assumes that those with wealth are blessed and certainly will be kicking up their feet in the afterlife, sipping on pina colada as those deserving bliss for their hard work, philanthropic endeavors, cultural contributions, and betterment of society. This belief holds true even though most people seek after riches so that they will not have to depend on anyone else ever and certainly not depend on God and be subject to delayed gratification. As Pastor Sean O'Donnell at New Covenant Church in Naperville writes, quote, wealth often numbs our minds to the realities of the joys of heaven and the torments of hell. There is always something more on earth to buy or look forward to when one has wealth. Wealth often lures us into believing that everything can be had for a price. In most cases, with wealth comes self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-importance, and self-security, unquote. Jesus says, 
that we who have wealth are the ones in need of a wake-up call. Editorial, we who have wealth need a wake-up call. We can get humpback camels through the eye of a sewing needle easier than we can get rich people into heaven. And by the way, all you savvy scholarly people out, out there that are just wondering, historically, there is no evidence of an eye-of-the-needle gate uh, in case you were wondering about the comparative figure. Jesus is comparing a camel to a small sewing needle. But God, who can do anything can save the souls of people with wealth too. <laughs> well, at least we go away despairing of the hard choices Jesus calls us to make in this world. Consider what Jesus says to Peter about his choices. If you're down in verse 27, you see these words. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You will not miss out on anything if you have made a decision to follow Jesus with your life. <laughs> your decision may have cost you a lucrative career in your field because you had to make choices to honor Jesus Jesus ethically or to honor Jesus toward the time you give your family compared to the time you give to your work. Your decision to follow Jesus might have cost you a happy relationship with your siblings, your parents, your children, your extended family members, or even a spouse because you can't just do things the way your family has always done them, the way other family members do family, or because you would not do what everyone else in society deems acceptable and allowable for family. Even when the whole family gets together, just because they're all laughing about it and partying does not make it right. You understand that and it costs you when you follow Jesus. You have to honor God as a wife, as a mother, as a sister, as a daughter, as a son, father, husband, or brother. And that might mean being rejected altogether by your family. Your decision to follow Jesus might mean that you are cut off from the inheritance to be shared by the unbelieving members of your family, claiming to be Christian but living sub-Christian lives. It's tough now. It's tiring. And it's seemingly unfair. It got old very quickly. Yet Jesus says a time is coming when those who have it all now will have no kingdom to show for it. And those who have given up all now will have everything to show for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You certainly have made the right choice. You certainly will have more wealth than you will know what to do with. You certainly will have a happier life coming than you ever had down here on earth, even in the best of marriages and families. And you certainly will have eternal life and will not perish under the wrath of God. For one day, we all will be staring at Jesus. 
sitting on his throne, ruling all people, and giving judgment of Israel over to the 12 apostles who first gave all to follow Jesus. You who lost a house will have treasures greater than houses. You who lost family relationships will have more than enough joyous, loving, intimate, happy relationships to sustain you for all of eternity. <laughs> Jesus has not forgotten about us. Jesus has not looked the other way when your family has deserted and disowned you. Jesus has not seen what they did wrong to you on your job. Jesus has not missed out that it cost you financially. Jesus has remembered us. And we need to remember that it is not about rights or about being right, but it is all about the pleasure and provision of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your great kindness toward us and your all-powerful word, your sustaining word, and your hopeful word, O oh God. Thank you that with every hard word, there are words of hope, God. Thank you that this life is not all there is, but there is a life yet to come. And when we've been there 10,000 years, oh God, it'll seem just like one second in all of eternity's joys. We bless your name today, oh God. God, would you help in a great way those who came here today who will hear this word in many other ways who are struggling in their marriage to give them your grace. Would you bless those who have made sacrifices and it has caught them, cost them for the decision to follow Jesus, cost them in family, cost them inheritance maybe. It's caused deep pains and anguish of the heart. God, thank you for being a God who is full of love and grace and mercy. And now, God, we bless your name for your good kindness in speaking to us today. And we love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you more. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray.